Welcome to the podcast, Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Today we're going to be talking about how religion and evolution are intimately interconnected. I'll be making the claim that religion played an enormous role in human development. In fact, I'll be going so far as to say if it hadn't been for religion, human beings might never have developed into the ultra-social beings that we are. Your first response might be, wait, I thought religion and evolution were at odds with one another. If you grew up in certain branches of Christianity, I can certainly understand why you might think that. But I hope that by the end of today's episode, you'll realize that such an assumption is simply incorrect. Because the usual assumptions around the terms religion and evolution are, to put it bluntly, wrong. Moreover, those assumptions are unhelpful since they keep us from seeing that our own evolution as human beings has been clearly dependent upon religion. Before we get started, though, let me remind you that OnBecoming has a presence on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. Please do send me your questions, your comments, your suggestions for the podcast to OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. But there's also something new. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast, perhaps you might consider supporting it. The overall goal of Unbecoming is to explore the forces that shape us. Perhaps you've already come to realize what I'm hoping to accomplish in this podcast, namely, to put into question many of our assumptions. But that deconstruction of concepts and assumptions is not designed merely to negate or be destructive. Instead, I'm hoping to help you question these assumptions in order to understand things better and become better at being human. At this point in the podcast, we're spending a great deal of time trying to make sense of religion, where it came from, what it is, and whether it's something we still need. Just in case you're wondering, I'm going to be arguing that human beings absolutely need at least something like religion. If you're thinking, I hate religion, or the people I know who are religious are crazy, or religion is responsible for all the violence in the world, I can see why you'd think that. But once you come to realize that, like it or not, we humans have been deeply shaped by religion, then we can start to figure out how to retain the useful parts of religion and dispense with the unhelpful and, for some of us, damaging aspects of religion. Put another way, if you think you can simply ignore religion and hope that it goes away, good luck with that. With that in mind, my goal is to help you think about why we have religion and how it can be a powerful force for good and, of course, for ill. Patreon dot com slash unbecoming podcast. You can also access that through Twitter, again at unbecoming pod. You'll see that there are various levels of support possible. The first level of support is friend of the pod. The next is student of the academy. The third is philosopher in training. The fourth level is disillusioned scholar. And the final level is overachiever. At any of these levels, you will get access to the Discord server, but each level provides access to additional resources. The student of the academy level gives you access to bi-weekly member-only content. Philosopher in Training gives you that, plus monthly interactive live streams. If you sign up on the Dissolution Scholar level, you'll also receive a copy of my book, Graven Ideologies. And the overachiever level includes a one-hour-per-month Zoom session with me in which you can ask questions or make comments or discuss anything you'd like. I hope you'll at least consider supporting the podcast. By the way, some of you who have heard me speak at conferences or videos online or in the classroom, you will know that I spend as little time as possible on this kind of housekeeping stuff in this case, the, the levels of support. But I'm hoping that the podcast will continue, and your support will truly make a difference. 
All right, let's go back to religion. We've gotten to the place where it should be clear what religion ends up being in its most basic form. It's about the sacred, whatever we think is truly important. The sacred can be about God, but it can just as easily be about various other things, some of which can be good, and some of which perhaps not so good. When we take something to be sacred, we naturally find ourselves connected to one degree or another with other people who find that same thing or set of things to be sacred. In his highly influential book titled The Elementary Forms of Religious Life, the French sociologist Emile Durkheim spends the entire first chapter going through various possible ways of defining religion. He considers, for instance, the idea of the supernatural, but rejects it precisely because, as a concept, the supernatural is a relatively recent concept. He also rejects the idea that religion is about the divine because, well, as we've already seen, many religions don't have a concept of divinity. As he points out, even in religions that have a concept of the divine, many aspects of those religions have little or nothing to do with deities. One example he gives is the prohibition in the Hebrew Bible against mixing types of cloth together, such as weaving cotton and wool together. To quote him, it is impossible to see what role belief in Yahweh could have played in these prohibitions. In other words, it's hard to see why Yahweh would have cared about something so far removed as the mixing of fabric. He's not saying that Yahweh couldn't have been interested in such a thing. Instead, he just concludes that it's unlikely. In the end, Durkheim concludes that, and here I quote, religious phenomena fall into two basic categories, belief and rights. And at the very end of that chapter in which he considers all these different possibilities, he concludes with the following definition. A religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things, that is to say, things set apart and forbidden, beliefs and practices which unite into a single moral community called a church, all those who adhere to them. Of course, Durkheim wrote this at the beginning of the 20th century in the context of French Catholicism. Today, we would point out that although Christians use the concept of church, which, by the way, was a concept borrowed from ancient Greek society that had to do with citizens meeting together to make decisions about the community, other religious groups use different concepts and different terms to speak about their community. With this basic definition in mind, let's turn to how religion played a role in human evolution. If you consider yourself to be a religious person, you may not like the idea that your brain, like everyone else's, evolved to be inclined toward religion. Perhaps it seems far too much like determinism. Were you determined to be a religious person given your genetics? Conversely, if you aren't religious, and especially if you loathe religion, then the claim that human evolution required something like religion to enable the human species to develop language might not go down too well. Really? Human beings are like they are because of religion? Well, both the Reformation and the Enlightenment contributed to the concept of human beings as distinct individuals. We need to keep in mind that we evolved as beings that are strongly connected to one another. In this sense, we have some important commonalities with ant colonies and beehives. Each ant and bee is working together with the others for a communal result. In regard to bees, they are all committed to preserving the queen and keeping the hive safe from potential invaders. This is simply the result of their evolution. But what about our evolution? Back in World War II, William McNeil was drafted in the army and spent several months doing basic training, which involved a lot of marching. It was September 1941, and he was stationed in Texas. You can probably imagine what it would have been like to be marching around in the heat for many hours a day. But what he noticed 
was that after a number of weeks, the military unit he was in started to synchronize, not only in terms of their marching, but even in terms of how they related to one another as a group. Over time, that synchronization resulted in a unit that truly worked together as a unit. In effect, the group became like a colony of ants or bees, all focused on the same thing. Here's how McNeil reflects on that experience. Words are inadequate to describe the emotion aroused by the prolonged movement in unison that drilling involved. A sense of pervasive well-being is what I recall. More specifically, a strange sense of personal enlargement, a sort of swelling out, becoming bigger than life, thanks to participation in the collective ritual. Here they are, marching around the dust, and slowly they start to have a collective sense of belonging to something much bigger than any one individual. McNeil hypothesized that this, as he calls it, muscular bonding, must have been a mechanism used for millennia to promote cooperation and trust. In case you're wondering, does this really make sense? The reality is that doing things together has been shown time and again to have the potential to form a group, to promote bonding and trust. There are fascinating studies of people singing together that demonstrate that their cortisol, that is the stress hormone, levels are reduced and their oxytocin levels increase. Oxytocin is what inclines people to see their lives as connected and encourages bonding. It's sometimes called the love drug, for its increase causes us to have warm feelings towards others. Oxytocin is the hormone that is released by our bodies in response to human touch. It's also released by way of music, particularly music in which we are all participating together. Now, consider how McNeil goes on to describe his experience after the war. Many veterans who are honest with themselves will admit, I believe, that the experience of communal effort in battle has been the high point of their lives. Their I passes insensibly into a we, my becomes our, and individual fate loses its central importance. I believe that it is nothing less than the insurance of immortality that makes self-sacrifice at these moments so relatively easy. I may fall, but I do not die. For that which is real in me goes forward and lives on in the comrades for whom I gave up my life. This is a pretty remarkable statement. Those of us who have never experienced the combat of war probably wonder, why would a situation in which people killing one another be one that soldiers look back to as a high point? The explanation, though, I think is relatively simple. It's precisely in moments like this that the individual loses the sense of being just an individual and instead becomes part of a collective. It's this sense of we're all doing this together. Notice how deep that connection goes. The individual's immortality is, for McNeil, not based on an afterlife. The soldier is not immortal because he or she does not die. Instead, the sense of immortality comes about because the group actually is a unit, and the person who dies to protect that unit lives on in that unit. Needless to say, this is a very different conception of immortality than is found in many forms of modern Christianity that think of immortality as the continued life of the individual. That we think of immortality in this way, I think, says much about our conception of what it means to be a person. Instead of thinking of ourselves as finding our identity in community, our identity is thought to be purely individual. Such a way of thinking may seem obvious to you, but again, that's an effect of the Reformation and the Enlightenment. Human beings have the potential to be at least somewhat like ants and bees. As a species, we are obviously more individuals than our ants and bees, but the reality is that our ability to enjoy freedom is only possible because we have something like a collective in which those freedoms are both promoted and monitored. In terms of a fighting unit, a highly unified group of soldiers will not retreat until only 10% of its members are left, whereas a disunified unit will give up and retreat as soon as only 10% of their number has been killed. 
Those numbers tell us something remarkable about how groups stay together. If they have a sense of being united, they will continue working together until the group is nearly decimated. But if they don't have that sense of being united, they will break ranks pretty quickly. We've already talked about the precipitous decline in religion in the West, most recently in the United States. But as we noted, one of the major aspects of that decline is that, to use an example, American evangelicals no longer have a strong sense of unity. It's no surprise, then, that American evangelicalism is swiftly declining. Having seen how military training can unite people, let's turn to what explorers found as they traveled around the world. One of the remarkable aspects of the travel that became possible in the 19th century was that on every continent that Europeans visited, they witnessed people dancing together around a fire to the beat of drums. Explorers found this phenomenon everywhere they went. Interestingly enough, the almost universal reaction to seeing people wearing masks, using body paint, and making loud guttural noises was disgust. The Europeans thought they were seeing savages. But the real problem was that the Europeans had very little ability to understand what was happening right in front of them. They were so distant from their own evolutionary roots that the very things that united a culture were not even appreciated for their power, or at least they weren't at first. Over time, though, anthropologists and sociologists came to realize that they were witnessing a rite of something like unification. In her book, Dancing in the Streets, A History of Collective Joy, I love that title, I think it's just wonderful, Barbara Ehrenreich argues that the, and she uses the term biotechnology, for binding groups together is collective and ecstatic dancing. Ehrenreich claims that Christianity was originally a danced religion. And she actually has history on her side for such a claim. Certain church fathers made dance part of the Christian liturgy. If you've ever been to St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church in San Francisco, you have seen the mural of the dancing saints. I realize that to us today, dancing and church seem like they don't really go together. Evangelicals have largely been against dancing, thinking that it was worldly. But you might find it surprising that Ambrose actually used both music and dance to counter the Arians. Uh, the Arians were a group of Christians whose views were deemed heretical. Now, even though Ambrose had never heard of oxytocin, he would have seen dancing as a way to unify Christians, in this case, against the heretics. Do you see why this would be so powerful? His group would gain a shared sense of belonging by dancing together and that unity would be effective in combating a common enemy. Now, in contrast, Augustine was against dancing, and his view eventually became the standard view of Christendom. Certainly, that's the view I got growing up evangelical. Given what we now know about how unity is created among human beings, it turns out Augustine's view was a bad move for the future of Christianity. Of course, you can probably also guess that dancing, and such things as speaking in tongues, give the congregation more power than some priests would have been comfortable with. You might find it interesting to know that scholars now think that churches installed pews in the Middle Ages primarily to keep people from dancing. Ehrenreich draws on Durkheim, who believes that there are social facts, um, such as ideas about patriotism, the rate of suicide, various things like that, that are simply not reducible to facts about individuals. Durkheim frequently criticizes Freud for explaining religion and morality only on the basis of individuals, not taking into account how groups function. In contrast, Durkheim argues that homo sapiens are actually homo duplex, since we exist on two different levels, that of the individual and that of the society. Here's how he puts that. 
The second set of emotions are those which bind me to the social entity as a whole. The first set of emotions leave my autonomy and personality almost intact. No doubt they tie me to others, but without taking much of my independence from me. When I act under the influence of the second, by contrast, I am simply a part of a whole whose actions I follow and whose influence I'm subject to. With that in mind, he points out the following. The very act of congregating is an exceptionally powerful stimulant. Once individuals are gathered together, a sort of electricity is generated from their closeness and quickly launches them to an extraordinary height of exaltation. Of course, Durkheim does not see this collective as our ordinary state. In fact, most of the time we are preoccupied with our everyday existence, keeping healthy, having enough food, shelter, etc. That these moments of the sacred are special. So what causes us to move beyond the realm of the ordinary everyday, in which we are mainly conscious of ourselves and not directed toward the collective? Ralph Waldo Emerson believed that the deepest truths are those we know through intuition rather than reason. For him, these truths announce themselves to us when we are in the midst of nature. He says, Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted in infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or particle of God. Charles Darwin writes of a similar experience. In my journal, I wrote that while standing in the midst of the grandeur of a Brazilian forest, it is not possible to give an adequate idea of the higher feelings of wonder, admiration, and devotion which feel and elevate the mind. I rem remember my conviction that there is more in man than the breath of his body. In many societies, religious experience is connected to substances, such as the hallucinogen psilocybin, the chemical compound in magic mushrooms, or cannabis, or DMT, dimethyltryptane, and other drugs that alter our brain chemistry. These substances take one outside of oneself, allowing one to see beyond assumed boundaries. In the case of psilocybin, a psychologist, Rick Doblin, administered it to 20 Divinity School students in Boston. Uh, this is back, of course, when experiments like this were still allowed. And here were the results. One, a loss of sense of self, replaced by a sense of oneness with others and the universe. Two, transcendence of space and time. Three, a deep sense of positivity. Four, a sense of sacredness. Five, intuitive knowledge that seems not just true, but authoritatively true. And six, a difficulty to explain such experiences to others. 25 years later, Doblin spoke to most of the participants and had this to say. All psilocybin subjects participating in the long-term follow-up, but none of the controls, in other words, the people who were given a placebo, still considered their original experience to have had genuinely mystical elements and to have made a uniquely valuable contribution to their spiritual lives. In an article in the Times, uh, the Times of London, that is, Doblin is quoted as saying that psychedelic drugs were, and here I'm quoting, part of the foundations of Western culture. He makes reference to the secret religious rites in ancient Greece called the Eleusinian Mysteries. He writes, quote, it started around 1000 B.C., and went to 390 A.D. or so. And he goes on to say, it involved a drink called kaikion, and there has been modern scholarship about having 
a psychedelic component in it. It was wiped out by the Catholic Church. In case you're wondering, the psychotic component in Kaikian is similar to LSD. Does that come as a surprise? The church would find itself uneasy with a congregation dancing furiously and taking mind-altering drugs? The principal problem, of course, is that such practices are very difficult to control. Even the persons involved in such a situation lose something like a normal rationality and control over themselves. As an example of what he's talking about, when the explorer Cortez arrived in Mexico in 1519, he discovered that the Aztecs practiced a religion in which taking magic mushrooms was key. The locals called the substance Tionacatl, which translates as God's flesh. Within 30 minutes of ingesting the mushrooms, congregants would leave the everyday world and be transported to the realm of the sacred. Not surprisingly, the European explorers noted the parallel to the Eucharist in Christianity. Many societies have a coming-of-age ritual. These are or have been often accompanied by various sorts of drugs, all basically similar to magic mushrooms. So what about today? Do people ever have such religious feelings? Tony Shea, who made a fortune at age 24 when he sold his tech startup to Microsoft and then became the founder of Zappos, writes the following about attending a rave. What I experienced next changed my perspective forever. Yes, the decorations and lasers were pretty cool, and yes, this was the largest single room full of people dancing that I had ever seen. But neither of those things explained the feeling of awe that I was experiencing. As someone who is known as being the most logical and rational person in a group, I was surprised to find myself being swept up with an overwhelming sense of spirituality, not in the religious sense, but a sense of deep connection with everyone who was there, as well as the rest of the universe. It was as if the experience of individual consciousness had disappeared and had been replaced by a single unifying group consciousness. Now, at this point, it should be clear that there's something odd about his statement. He clearly assumes that religion is some other thing, and so he defaults to the term spirituality. Yet, as we've seen, precisely this deep sense of connection to others and the universe is what religion has historically been about. I assume he's attempting to say that he has no formal religious ties, um, doesn't go to church, etc., etc. But we've already established that religion doesn't necessarily have anything to do with going to church or anything like that, though it does have something to do with people congregating together. Raves, as well as certain kinds of concerts, can function in this way of fostering a sense of community. One feels a oneness with everyone there. Often this is enhanced by drugs. There's a reason why the street name for MDMA is ecstasy. Ecstasis is the ancient Greek word that literally means being outside of oneself or being taken out of oneself. Note that such chemicals lead to a heightened sense of awareness and connectedness. Oxytocin is a chemical that women secrete when they are near to giving birth. It's a chemical that binds the mother and child together. In species in which the male hangs around after mating, the males also secrete oxytocin. As I mentioned earlier, Oxytocin is sometimes called the love drug, but it's also known as the hug drug. Oxytocin causes us to open up to others. If you hug someone for at least 10 seconds, the chemical starts to secrete in your own body. The longer the hug, the more the oxytocin. In the context of a group, oxytocin produces something that looks like altruism, that is, the concern for others that goes beyond merely a concern for oneself. In research subjects who watch videos of people suffering, 
their oxytocin level rises. But there's a bit of a catch here. Altruism starts out being entirely parochial. That is, it makes you concerned about the people in your group. Given that the history of the world could be told in terms of us versus them, the reality is that we, at least in the West, have become more altruistic much more generally. In other words, that parochialism need not be limited and can be expanded. For instance, right now there is an armed conflict in Ukraine. While Ukraine is really not part of Europe, the response of Europeans has been a combination of both worry for the destruction of the world order and an actual concern for Ukrainians. I've been to Ukraine twice to give talks, and I feel a stronger sense of concern for those people of Ukraine as a result. When talking about altruism, it is helpful to keep in mind that the motives of our actions are always mixed. There's nothing like a pure action. In other words, we may be partly concerned for another person, and yet still concerned about ourselves and others who are important to us. But also keep in mind that such altruism is largely directed to our group. In various experiments to see if oxytocin might cause people to like people judged different from them, the result was that it just made people like their own group more. So oxytocin could likewise promote an even deeper sense of tribalism. Of course, one interesting question here is, which group? If you think about it, all of us are members of various kinds of groups. In principle, then, you could feel stronger or weaker bonds with the various groups of which one is either officially or de facto a member. Can you feel altruistic towards those who are not immediately part of your group? I'm a member of the LGBTQ plus community. And when I read about bad things happening to members of that community, it saddens me. But I suspect that most people in the West at this point in history also find it sad when members of the community they do not belong to are harmed. That means our definition of us can change over time to include more of them. Still, we need to keep in mind that the preference for people who are like us is a fundamental human drive. Alas, human beings are not predisposed from an evolutionary standpoint to love everyone. That point is important when we consider political problems that we currently have. If neuroscientists are right, then it is not surprising that people who disagree politically may see themselves as actually being part of a different group and thus disposed to dislike those who are not part of us. Now, how did this all come about? Michael Tomasello, at this point the leading neuroscientist on the topic, believes that human, and here's the term here, ultra-sociality, arose in two steps. The first was what is usually termed shared intentionality. Even though chimps are the next smartest animals after humans, they are not able to share a task in the sense of planning it and undertaking it together. The second step is a group-mindedness. That means the ability to learn, understand, and conform to social norms due to a shared intentionality and a sense of being part of a group. According to Tomasello, it is the combination of these two aspects that makes human language possible. Language is not merely a sound or a word connected with a thing. If that were the case, the sound or letter linked to the world would be purely random. However, one doesn't have to study various languages very long before it becomes clear that they have a conceptual basis that's shared among the speakers of that language. Put otherwise, language represents a shared conception of the world, a shared conception of how the world operates. Now, in terms of the sharing, here's a kind of interesting example, the Aculean Toolkit. For about a million years, the teardrop-shaped axe was the main tool used by people across the world. 
the axes that archaeologists have found from Africa, from Europe, and from Asia, they all look nearly identical. Yet there's a little reason to think that this knowledge could have spread that far and wide. While it's possible that this knowledge was passed on culturally, the fact that it is present in all of what was then the known world, and that it looks nearly identical, would seem to indicate that the knowledge for how to make these tools simply became innate. In other words, at that point in our evolutionary development, humans seem to have developed the instinctual ability to simply know how to make an axe. How exactly does religion function in the social group? If we consider the US, the UK, and most of European society as examples, what we usually call religion is at this point largely marginalized. While it's true that religious leaders are often asked to comment on public affairs, it's clear that their opinions are worth less today than they once were. The reality is that only a relatively small portion of the population cares about their opinions. But to the extent that there is a sense of we, a group with shared concerns and visions for the future, then something like religion is at work. You might wonder if I'm speaking incorrectly, but here I'm not talking about any particular form of religion, and even less about something that people call organized religion. I'm only using the term religion in the sense of whatever binds us together. While what binds us together could be the sense of belief in gods or some kind of set of doctrines, most likely it's not anything like that at all. Yet even that disclaimer is not quite enough. We may not believe any common theological doctrines together, but we do share many beliefs about our common world. Indeed, probably the most profound kind of religious vision is one in which we see how connected we are in important ways. Given the Enlightenment, which created the whole sacred-secular divide, which we could also see in terms of church and state, we tend to think of religion as an individual private thing. But in many parts of the world, ones that have not gone through the Enlightenment or something similar, such a distinction seems hollow and meaningless. Instead, religion is viewed very much as something that one engages in together with others. But as we've seen, the Enlightenment forced religion to become something private. Since there were many competing religious views, the best thing seemed to be to redefine religion as something that had nothing to do with the state, something that was purely about the individual and not something that was to be shared in the public square. But if a community has never gone through something like the Enlightenment, the idea that religion is a private thing seems odd. Historically, human societies did not make a distinction between religion and the public sphere. It was all one big thing. Consider hunter-gatherer communities. The movement to hunter-gatherer communities was away from a society governed by males. In much of the animal kingdom, there are alpha males who lead the group. But in hunter-gatherer societies, there are no leaders and anyone who attempts to act as the leader is rapidly put down, both metaphorically and literally. In his book, The Faith Instinct, How Religion Evolved and Why It Matters, Nicholas Wade says the following, The egalitarianism of hunter-gatherers is not a passive preference, but a system that is aggressively maintained because it is under constant challenge. From time to time, strong individuals emerge and try to dominate a group, but their efforts invariably provoke a coalition against them. Others in the group will mock them or ignore their orders. If they persist, they will be shunned or even evicted from the group. If they are too intimidating, they will be killed. But how did we evolve from chimps who seem reasonably content to be led by an alpha male? Our increasing brain size made individual humans smarter, as well as better able to work together. Given this additional cognitive capacity, members of a group would be able to question anyone who might try to be a dictator, and also be able to use weapons against such people. 
Among the enduring concerns of sociologists are the problems of freeloading and anarchy. If you're smart, you probably can figure out ways to get out of work or responsibilities or following the rules. Thus, cognitive development increases the threat from both freeloading and anarchy. The problem with freeloaders is that they seriously break down the community. If you see that other people are getting away with things, you're probably going to be tempted to think, well, why not me? However, if you lived in community, which is under constant threat from starvation, war, inclement weather, there's not a lot of room for freeloaders. They eat just as much as everyone else, but they don't contribute to the group. As Wade points out, the development of language made it possible for people to lie, to make promises they don't intend to keep, and generally manipulate others. So this made group cohesion even more difficult. But religion turns out to be the solution to both internal and external problems. Internally, those who try to be freeloaders can be punished by the community. Similarly, those who do not follow the rules of the community can also be punished. Many of the students I've taught over the years assume that without the Ten Commandments or some other divine commands, societies would be full of anarchy. However, the reality is that societies universally don't tolerate killing, stealing, deception, adultery, and various other things that are disruptive. Put another way, would you want to live in a society in which stealing was allowed? If it were allowed, you'd probably never want to leave your house. It would be too dangerous. People could come steal your stuff. Then there are the external problems. From what we're able to tell, the reality for hunter-gatherer societies is they were almost constantly at war. In our time, war happens perhaps once in a generation. But 75% of societies in the past were at war at least once every two years. Fighting a war requires cohesion in a group. You trust that the other people will back you up, that you're in this together. You don't want to be fighting for your life with a freeloader. There's another aspect to all of this. Postulating a god who can see everything one does proves a highly effective technique to get people to control themselves. One way in which the existence of God might be a deterrent to crime is that we might feel embarrassed by what such a God could be thinking of us. Just the awareness that God knows is already an effective deterrent. Another way is even more obvious. If there's a God who gets upset about what people do on earth, there's good reason to think that such a God will reward and punish us according to what we do. Along those lines, we need to keep something very basic in mind. Laws largely work because most people obey them. And most people obey them because they're convinced that they make sense. No society could ever have enough police to enforce their laws. As I used to say to students for many years, people are likely to ignore rules that don't make any sense to them as long as they can do so without severe consequences. If you've ever gone even one mile over the speed limit, you have effectively broken the law. But of course, in most societies, there's some kind of give and take regarding how strictly laws are enforced. Few people get speeding tickets for going merely one mile over the speed limit. Now, hunter-gatherer communities had no police or other body to enforce the rules. Instead, everyone enforced them together because the rules were constantly put into question, either purposely or accidentally. We have to keep in mind that humans have long tried to make sense of the world by way of cause and effect. With such reasoning, many religions postulated the existence of other forces, the sun god, the rain god, etc., and believed that staying on their good side was pretty important for their continued existence. While we today would think of such beliefs as primitive, it's important to see that people were simply doing the best that they could, given the knowledge available to them. Religions often involve sacrifice, in some cases an animal, but in other cases a human being. The Aztecs slaughtered thousands of virgins in order to appease the gods. Wade makes the following point about the newer people, a pastoral, nilotic people of the Lower Sudan. 
The newer spirits require bloody offerings. And if they are not given animal sacrifices, they seize their devotees and make them sick. Newer, therefore, do not hesitate to bargain with these spirits. The sense of the bargain is always the same. If we give you an ox or a sheep or a goat, will you leave the sick man alone that he might not be troubled by you? In the same way that there must be specific genes for language, so researchers have wondered if there are similar sorts of genes for religion. Religion is thought to be moderately heritable, though it needs certain environmental factors to flourish. Charles Darwin writes the following, Nor must we overlook the probability of the constant inculcation in a belief in God on the minds of children producing so strong and perhaps an inherited effect on their brains not yet fully developed, that it would be as difficult for them to throw off their belief in God as for a monkey to throw off its instinctive fear and hatred of a snake. The evidence we have suggests that only about 15,000 years ago did people start living in larger societies, like those we have today. Five million years earlier, our societies would have been like those of chimpanzees. There would have been a male hierarchy and a female hierarchy. The alpha male would have been in charge and ruled by way of sheer power or might. But the rise of hunter-gatherer societies change this dynamic. In a hunter-gatherer society, there is no one who is giving the orders. I'll quote Wade again on this point. The egalitarianism of hunter-gatherers is aggressively maintained because it is under constant challenge. From time to time, strong individuals emerge and try to dominate a group. But their efforts invariably provoke a coalition against them. If they persist, they will be shunned and even evicted from the group. If they are too intimidating, they will be killed. To avoid blood feuds, the group that has decided to eliminate a dominating leader will often assign one of his own relatives to kill him. As should be clear, this change represents a massive adjustment in how the group relates. Due to substantial brain development in humans, we emerge as a species that did not want to be ruled by someone who had power simply due to physical strength. Of course, it's important to note that the idea of male hierarchy has not simply gone away. In contemporary society, we have an awareness of this tendency toward male hierarchy, and we have found various ways to soften it. In these egalitarian communities, Whatever was killed in the hunt belonged to everyone. Bragging about one's decisive axe blow to the victim would have gotten you into a lot of trouble. Instead, the goal would have been to make light of your achievement and to focus on the efforts of the entire group. Stinginess could also get you into trouble. It was both a symbolic and a practical matter to share with everyone equally. Wade claims that all religions have concepts of the supernatural whether in the form of gods or the spirits of departed ancestors. What we've seen so far, of course, is that we should be careful in using the word all, because many societies both have and have had concepts of the supernatural, but not all. The Greek gods were certainly more powerful than human beings, but they had limitations. In contrast, the general theistic view among Judaism Christianity and Islam is that God is all-powerful and all-knowing. Central to such an idea is a pretty big assumption, namely that God or the gods have an interest in our lives. For the idea of God to have any moral force, it would be necessary to think that these gods are deeply interested in such things as what we eat and who we have sex with and many other things. If one could be convinced that God or a set of gods care about such things, then it's easy to see that the existence of such gods or the belief in their existence would provide something like moral force. Indeed, rules seen as prescribed by the gods would seem to have of the ultimate force. How could one argue with or disobey the gods? Before we conclude, let's go back over exactly what we've seen in this episode. We began with a basic concept of religion, the idea of something sacred that binds people together. 
Then we considered how bodily movement in coordination with others connects us to them in a profound way, something that recent neuroscience makes clear. We looked how societies used music and dance as ways to bind people together. Many of those societies would have had the concept of God or gods, and that concept also bound a group together, as well as proved a deterrent behavior that threatened any group unity. And we saw how the kind of group intentionality fostered by religion made the jump to language possible. If the neuroscientist Thomas Sello is correct, then religion played a crucial role in helping us become linguistic beings. Finally, we talked about how chemical substances played a massive role in many religions, and that even today, the use of certain substances can provide the same sorts of feelings that religion provides for many people. I hope, as a result of this episode, that you've come to think about the relationship between religion and evolution in an entirely different way. The usual way of thinking about them is that somehow religion and evolution are at odds with one another. But that's a very simplistic view. You might find it interesting that the kinds of things we've been discussing in this podcast, particularly today in this episode, are almost totally absent from philosophy religion courses. The reason for this is that those courses usually don't even bother with the concept of religion, and thus just simply begin with the assumptions that everyone has. Jesus spoke of those who have ears to hear, and Nietzsche takes this a step further, speaking of those who have ears even behind their ears. I'm hoping that you're discovering your own ears behind your ears and are finding that your assumptions are being put into question in order for much deeper thinking to take place. If you're finding these discussions helpful, I hope you'll support us on Patreon. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and you've been listening to On Becoming.